Bryn Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. Welcome back to this week's episode of New Retina Radio COVID-19 coverage. Today's episode is entitled, Are Today's Protocols Tomorrow's Routine? And by that, what we're going to be talking about is, is what we are doing today to manage patients and deal with uh, COVID-19. What aspects of that are actually going to become commonplace for the future? I have an esteemed group of panelists here with me that many of you will know. We have Murtaza Mu Autumn, uh, who is at Colorado Retina in Denver, Colorado. We have David Alameda, who is in Erie, Pennsylvania at the Erie Retinal Surgery Institute. And we have Christina Wing, who is at the Baylor College of Medicine. I want to thank you all for joining us. Uh, as of right now, May 19th, 2020, we have 4.8 million cases of coronavirus worldwide and 1.5 million cases in the United States. As far as deaths are concerned, 322,000 deaths, uh, 22, deaths globally and almost 92,000 deaths in the United States. So I'd like to start out by welcoming each of you. Uh, let's start with David. David, you're in Erie, Pennsylvania. Can you describe to us how things are in Erie, Pennsylvania? Yeah, it's nice to be on here with everyone. Uh, it's so, you know, Philly and kind of the east, uh, eastern side of the state got hit hard. Uh, we're kind of in the better side of it in the northwest tip. Uh, and so out of the whole state, it's probably been one of the least hit. So we were phased into the yellow phase, which is kind of this new transition uh, last week. Uh, so from that point of view, it's been, you know, positive. However, you know, we're obviously cognizant of the rest of the state. Uh, and, and yeah, and I'm in a four partner retin only practice uh, in, uh, in Erie, Pennsylvania. And we're actually a private practice with a single site, uh, well, with multiple fo floors, which is a little bit different uh, with uh, a lot of parks not having satellites. David, how is coronavirus now affecting your practice? Are you back up to full volume, elective surgeries and whatnot? Yeah, so for the most part, yeah, elective surgeries are back. Uh, we're kind of uh, gearing up. We're kind of in a unique spot, John, in the sense that, so we have two floors. In our second floor, we actually do an injection-only clinic. It's how we've always done it. So we do injection-only visits for, you know, kind of the treatment phase of uh, whatever the patient's getting. And then downstairs is where we run our imaging and all that stuff. So that, that helped us probably. That was a massive help because our injection clinic kept running because people kept come in, you know, just basically come in for the injection, go home, and we could control that a lot better than, let's say, you know, regular visits. That's interesting. We'll get back to that, actually. That's a really great point, David. I'd like to know how you changed your management of these patients. But until then, let's talk to Moo. Moo, you're out in Denver, Colorado. What's the status of coronavirus in Denver? Um, you know, the, the, the curve in, in our area has plateaued. Uh, quite nicely. We've had a very, uh, I think, conservative approach from the governor and the, the mayor in Denver in terms of stay-at-home orders. Um, and uh, over the last week and a half, we've had safer at home where some other businesses are opening like hair salons and things like that, but with strict uh, precautions in place about number of people that can be allowed inside and, and masks being mandatory in grocery stores and things like that. And so locally, I, I think things are under control. And, and I have a 
few colleagues that are hospitalists and they're telling me, you know, that the ICUs right now are not overwhelmed. Uh, you know, we're not as densely populated as, as the places in the East Coast or Detroit or Louisiana, but um, uh, I think we're doing okay. And I see that reflected in our clinics. Uh, we're, a, we're a 13 physician retina only practice and we have five satellite offices, some of which we, we contain, you know, three physicians per day in, in one office. And so we've had a really radical change in the way we've run things because it's just been um, it's trying to manage fear for patients and trying to maximize safety. Um, and so in the, in the beginning, it's been interesting, you know, uh, we, we're getting closer to full steam. We're, we're still rescheduling, I think, the one-year follow-ups uh, if, if they're not seeing their doctor. Um, but the way we started out doing is we started doing shifts where half the practice would, would be in clinic and the other half would be on the bench. And the idea there was if somebody gets exposed or sick, they could be uh, put, on the, uh, put on quarantine and, and someone else could fill that, that gap. So we've been seeing each other's patients essentially. Um, it's been have you had any physicians that have gotten uh, sick or any, any of your staff, have they contracted coronavirus? Um, we've had uh, three positive cases in our, in our staff member, from our staff members. None of the physicians have, have uh, tested positive. Um, uh, one, of, one of them, close family member has, and has been very sick. So we've been very concerned about that. Uh, and when, when we first started uh, with the safe at home measures, the, the governor specifically and the Department of Health in Colorado specifically stated that anyone that visited the mountain range, so Summit County where Vail and Keystone and all the ski resorts are, anyone who visited there just in late February, early March had to be quarantined for two weeks, mandatory, if they worked in healthcare. That was six of our physicians. So we were sort of forced to that model uh, because of a mandate from the Department of Health. Was that because there was an outbreak in that area or why was it? Yeah, there's so much international travel in Vail and, and, uh, and, and those, those areas that there was, there was a spike in cases. They basically shut it down. The ski resorts shut down four months early. And, uh, and, and since then, things have quieted down in the Mountain West. Yeah. Great. Very interesting. Christina, you're in Houston at Baylor. Uh, tell us how things are in Houston and then specifically how things are in the department. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, John, first of all, and nice to see everybody virtually. Um, so Texas has actually relatively low numbers considering what a large state. We didn't know what was going to happen because we are such a populous area, um, but relatively low in comparison to other cities and areas our size. Um, we have about 50,000 cases as of today in Texas and about 1,300 deaths uh, with more hospitalizations. Um, and Houston is responsible for about a fifth of those cases. So, you know, when you're comparing to other cities that are equally as large, I mean, we have been relatively shielded. What's kind of interesting is that we never hit really a peak though either, like a lot of cities have, and that's made decision-making very tough because we don't know if that's forthcoming still. Um, but as many of you know, we opened about around 10 days ago in the state. Um, it's kind of a phased opening like many other places and the same is happening with our clinics and ORs. So at the Nader, I would say I was seeing only about 30% of my usual patient volume. So it really was a huge impact. And I know we're going to discuss that later, but it was tough. And um, surgeries were obviously closed and limited only to those emergent cases. Right now, we're at about a 50% volume with plans to open to 75% next week. 
But uh, I work in an academic department with around 25 physicians and uh, definitely the additional layer of bureaucracy that comes with being in a large institution has also made things challenging and dealing with that as well as the governor's orders and also what's coming from, you know, higher than that. And, and how's your, your surgical volume recovery? Are you guys doing elective cases? We just started doing elective cases last week. And uh, one of the challenging things is really just the logistics of get, getting everybody back on the schedule. I know, I'm sure all of us have just thousands of patients that are on the wait list who had care delayed because they weren't in injection and they weren't considered technically urgent. Um, one of the policies we actually have implemented for our elective cases, though, that's making things a little bit difficult is that every patient has to receive coronavirus testing in a time frame that's very strict before their actual surgery, before they're going to be let in through the door on surgery day. And that is more challenging than you might think, just given the spread of people in Texas, the fact that our patients tend to be older, they rely on other people for transportation, and the fact that people are still slowly moving into normalcy. Um, I, I'd be curious to hear if anyone else um, is experiencing that, but that's what we're doing right now. Christina, are you getting same day testing? We don't do same day testing um, because uh, what Baylor College of Medicine has decided upon is that um, the only valid test would be a nasal pharyngeal swab, which would then undergo reverse transcriptase PCR testing. So um, those results take time based on the facility that we use, um, which is right here on campus. And uh, the patients are actually asked to have that test done three to five days prior to the surgical day. And then they're required to quarantine until their surgical day. And um, just getting that information across and getting everybody tested and making sure that box is checked off has been, has been tough so far, but hopefully it'll get Mo easier. That's great. Moo, um, first of all, I want to remind our viewers that you can ask questions tonight. If you're watching us on Facebook Live, you can ask questions and we'll try to get to our panelists and answer all of those questions. Moo, surrounding surgery, are you testing all patients before they're taken to surgery? And are you doing same day testing or is it the same kind of testing Christina described where it takes several days to get it back? So we're doing a reverse transcriptase PCR testing like, like Christina described, um, but only at the hospital. And we find a really wide disparate range of, of policies for the various surgery centers we operate at in town. And so there are some surgery centers where they're kind of smaller operations and they simply ask, you know, screening questions, they check for a fever and they, and they ask that they had in any contact with a COVID positive patient. And if they check all the boxes, they can go ahead and get their case done. Whereas at the hospital, um, they're required to self quarantine for 10 days minimum before their surgery and required to get uh, coronavirus testing. I've heard of other places where they have to get it, you know, multiple times uh, before they can actually get their surgery done. And that's been a big limiting factor for other hospitals, but um, so for the most part, because of that, we haven't been doing elective cases at the hospital. We've been only doing them at the, the local surgery centers. Um, gotcha. Yeah. David, what about you? What, what's the situation in Erie? Are you doing testing preoperatively? No. You know, at the surgery centers I operate at, John, uh, basically just screening, just like uh, Musa having, you know, if, there's, if they pass the screening question, there's no contact, and that, that's, a, that's a, it. If there's some issue with the patient was recovering, then there would be testing necessary, but otherwise, no. For, and same thing when we were during the, the shutdown, when we were just doing emer, uh, emergent cases, retinal detachments, basically, uh, same thing. It was just still just a screening, unless the, the, the identified positive screen and testing would be required. Otherwise, no. 
So David, coming back to you, you described this clinical setup that you have with your first floor being your diagnostic and, and clinical exam, and then your second floor being an injection clinic. Uh, describe how you normally see patients and then how you modified that during COVID-19. Yeah, so we normally we see patients downstairs, you know, where they're basically a physician will see them, you know, make their diagnosis and set up some sort of treatment plan, whether that's go have one injection, have three injections, whatever they decide. And then all treatments done upstairs and what's upstairs, basically it's a negative pressure ventilation system with multiple lanes uh, and they're all kind of housed by a tech. And so patients on that, they just come in, they have usually a quick vision, uh, sometimes an OCT, but otherwise they come in for their injection and they leave. Uh, so during COVID-19, we basically, things like waiting rooms, we've obviously adjusted the PPE, all patients have to wear masks, some of the basic things, but what we try to do is minimize the, the common areas so that there's ample space there. And we've re-emphasized, we're already, I think, really efficient in how we were doing it before, but even more so that we want to have patients there the least amount possible. So they're really coming in, getting their injection and they're going, and we, we try to keep everyone on their treatment plans as best as we can. And, and are you doing more uh, treatments now than you were before? Are you saying, hey, instead of a series of three, I'm going to do a series of four, five, or six? Um, or are you pretty much maintaining the same semblance of care that you had before? Yeah, we're lucky that we pretty much kept the same level of care in that regard because we were basically set up to that. So we could just basically just say, let's stay on the treatment plans. We can extend them, like you said, that we've done data. And then we just minimize the visits downstairs to, hey, is this somebody that really needs to? Is this monocular? You know, whatever the issue be emergent case that has to go to surgery uh, while still having the injection clinic kind of running as full tilt as possible. Now, Christina, describe to me your normal evaluation and treatment plan for a new patient with wet AMD and what you're doing now with those patients. Sure. So normally if a new patient had been referred, um, they would get uh, at the very least an OCT, but also a fluorescein angiogram if I felt that there was any question about the diagnosis. And then we would usually chat. I'd like to actually have family members in the room before all of this because it's another listening ear for a lot of new information that's coming the patient's way. And we would talk about the diagnosis after I examined them, obviously. And, um, and then we would uh, let them know what's gonna come. Usually I have to wait till the next visit to start injecting because I have to obtain pre-authorization. Um, but then we would start you know, their series then. Um, it's different now in a couple of different ways. Uh, the first is that the patient is no longer able to bring a family member into the institution, um, into that building. That's our policy here at Baylor. That's getting relaxed a little bit as we open things back up. But uh, unless the patient, you know, needed someone to translate or was physically, um, you know, disabled in some way and needed someone to accompany them, they would come alone. So that's one big change. The second is with um, the way we have our patients flow through the clinic. So just like David was saying, we really try to streamline that visit for them. So when they come in, what used to happen is that they would check in and then the technician would bring them in talk to them about their history, get the intake, check their vision, dilate them, and then they would go get all of that testing done before they would see me. But to minimize the number of things that the patient's touching, the number of rooms that have to be turned over again in between the entrances and exits, what we've uh, changed is that the patient goes straight to imaging, gets an OCT. We really have limited fluorescein angiograms, fundus photography, any other ancillary testing unless it's absolutely necessary or might change management. So a lot of our patients just got an OCT 
so that we could confirm the diagnosis. And then, um, then they would be brought into the technician's room. And then I would actually see them out of that same room. And that way we were minimizing the number of times we had to clean that room again and the number of transfer points where there could be contamination. Um, so th those are probably the main, main differences. I was treating a lot more people also same day just to minimize another visit. That's been another change, but I'm not sure that's going to be sustainable going forward just from you know, financial and insurance issues as well. Right. I mean, what with this, describing, go ahead, Mo. I was going to say what Christina is describing is basically lean. I mean, that's, that's the transformation we made before COVID uh, where we took patients we took them right away to imaging, then to a multi-purpose room where they would get worked up by a tech, stay in the room, and the doctor would come in, do their evaluation, and treat same day. And so that's that's sort of the model we had, and we we've kept uh, I think that for the most part. Um, I really liked um, you know how you adapted and pivoted so quickly because it, we've had to think on our feet and and in ways that we never had to consider before in terms of safety. We never really thought that much other than wiping off the alcohol on an applinator um, <laughs> about contamination. You know, we really haven't had to think about it much. Um, yeah. One thing that I, I think is really has changed our practice and I think will carry forward in terms of new patients is we have started screening our patients uh, virtually. So we call them a day in advance, get their history, uh, all their meds, everything in the chart, pre-populate the note, and they come in and get their vision pressure and then see me right away. And that's something I think how, we'll get in the future. How's the communication with that, Moo? Is it difficult sometimes for older patients to communicate over the phone? It can be. It can be. And, and, and sometimes it's a matter of getting a family member with them uh, to, to help with that. Um, I, I personally, I would say, you know, and I know you had a whole uh, talk on telemedicine, but I, I think we've all tried to try to do it. And my hit rate of success in terms of hit working is probably about 50 to 60%. It's not easy for those older patients. They don't always hear what you're asking. So, um, it's not a perfect system, but I think, um, even when the, the po we're post COVID, if, and when that happens, um, I think that's something we'll carry forward because it, it'll just lend to more efficiency in the actual clinic. Now, you were describing before we went on how you've completely revised how you do your clinics based on a lean principle. Talk to us a little bit about that, irrespective of COVID. Sure, sure. Um, you know, our practice um, was, was fairly traditional in its uh, approach to seeing patients. We'd have patients check in, uh, meet a technician, get dilated, get their imaging done, move to another room, see the patient. There was like four or five transitions. And um, part of it was architectural. We were in old buildings with small rooms and we didn't have the ability to, to sort of change that model very easily. But we, uh, we talked about Dennis Hahn, one of my old mentors when I was in medical school, who uh, pioneered lean, the lean approach in ophthalmology and presented a lot of interesting talks at AAL about that. And um, we hired one of his partners in crime uh, as a consultant to, to join our practice and help us kind of transform our our protocols. And it's very simple. It's, it's sort of like a Jedi mind trick that the consultant comes over and is like, you know, uh, what are the problems? And then you ask him, well, what do you think? And he's like, well, what do you think? And, and he forces it out of you. He forces out the, the inefficiencies in your mind that you already know, but you just never verbalized or never cognitively kind of thought of. And through working with our staff primarily, because they, they're on the front lines uh, with the patients working through the flow, They've helped us transform our clinic architecture when we built new offices. They've literally counted steps from the door all the way to the imaging, to the, to the patient room and outside. 
and try to minimize the number of steps patients have taken. Um, and we're constantly collecting data and analyzing it to try to improve processes. So one of the major things that's carried forward and been really convenient about COVID is that when we design waiting rooms, um, there actually are none in our offices. And that's because we built more multi-purpose rooms and we simply want a patient to come in, get checked in at the desk, get imaged and get into a multi-purpose room right away before they're sent out. And if the flow is right, you can see 30 to 35 patients easily in a half day without sweating. And the patients don't feel it and you don't feel it. And you do those injections right in those rooms? We do all the injections, the screening in the rooms. Yeah. Yeah. So how has COVID changed your approach? I mean, I've, I, we've, we've initially stopped doing OCTs, just brought patients in and injected them, similar to what David was, was, was talking about. As time's gone on, I think we've gotten more comfortable uh, getting OCTs, so I think most of us are doing that. But I'd say 50 to 90% of the time, depending on the doctor, we're not checking pressure or vision unless the patient has a complaint. And that small change has really, really increased efficiency. I mean, patients are in and out usually in 30 minutes or less for those injection-only visits. Do you get feedback from patients saying, hey, you didn't check my vision, what's wrong? No, they're appreciative of getting in and out. They're truly, uh, you know, and, and, for, and we always are, the caveat is if a patient says, I, I'm noticing a change, I see a new floater, I'm, I feel like things are blurrier, we will make, be sure to image them and or dilate them if they, if they need that. But, well, but most of the time, I think the patients are appreciative. And I, I wonder uh, down the road how we'll, transition back. My staff's been asking me, you know, do you want to, do you want to check a vision and pressure now? Or do, should we start doing that? <laughs> you I know, wonder Chris, too, uh, go ahead, David. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you there, John. Uh, yeah. I wonder what the, the billing ramifications will be though for that vision and pressure. Cause that's so, sometimes a sticking point with payers, uh, uh, depending if it's an injection only visit or if you're uh, actually doing uh, an assessment. So, uh, and right now it's probably an atypical time, but I, I wonder how that'll carry yeah, over. We, we, we don't bill for any uh, visits when we do those, uh, those, non-pressure, non-vision checking, injection-only visits. So it's just a billing for the injection and the OCT. Um, but that, that's a good point. And, you know, David brought up that not a whole lot changed with his practice. Christina, you said a fair amount has changed with your practice. Do you see your practice going back to the old ways? Or are there enough efficiencies in this new way of bringing patients in, imaging, and putting them in the room and keeping them in the room that you're going to keep doing that? I think both. I think there are some things that are, that are going to stay and some things that are probably going to revert. We've been checking vision and, and pressure still for all of our patients. And, I, and most of them still do get an OCT because over 90% of the United States retina specialists treat on a treat and extend basis for our wet AMD patients. And so that's really what we're using as a guide. Um, so we, we, you know, luckily an OCT is very quick to get. And so I don't think that if you, if you have it ordered correctly in your process flow, it doesn't add that much time. I think what does add time is when you start ramping up the volume again and you get those bottlenecks. And that's why it's interesting to hear what Mu has done with his practice um, based on Dennis Han's work, because that is really why patients um, wait so long is there's a wait for the OCT. There's a wait for registration. There's a wait to see me. Um, and that can compound throughout the day, obviously. So um, I, I think that one thing that both um, my co-panelists here have already said are that the cleaning practices and our kind of our hygiene routines will probably stick around for at least a while. And it's hard to, once you say, hey, we're going to have this level of cleanliness in our offices, it's hard to say, okay, that's, it's over now. So we're going to revert back. Um, so I think that the wiping down the rooms with bleach and um, just being extra careful, perhaps the mask wearing too, I think is going to be around for a while. Forever, maybe, 
Um, but definitely for a while, um, those are things that are going to be there. But uh, I do think that there are going to be new problems that we face again once we do start um, getting back to our normal volumes. Um, and some of the weights will come back. That's just inevitable. Um, I will say never have our press gainy scores been higher during this period of time. And it really just shows that the wait time that patients experience is such a huge part in their overall experience and their satisfaction. And uh, I've almost had to warn my patients kind of in jest a little bit, but also to bring up the topic I've said, now don't get used to this. <laughs> I'll explain to them that we have lists of thousands of patients, which is no exaggeration, that are waiting to come back and that when they do, you know, some of the wait times are going to become longer again. But I personally have really enjoyed getting to spend that extra few minutes with patients. It's been a total change. You get to talk to them about their families and how they're doing. And of course, you're trying to minimize their visit, but just taking those few extra minutes to actually talk to them has really been enjoyable, I think, for me and my patients both. Um, but those are, you know, those are some of the things that I, I view as, um, as changes that probably will stick around. I, David, I the point is, go, is great. go ahead. Like, how are we going to become less clean after this? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's going to be hard to sell that. Um, uh, I don't know if this has been touched on before, but we've had a conversation in our practice about patients wearing masks and the fact that they're breathing over their eye. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of us are looking into that data to see if there's going to be, uh, is there going to be a spike in anophthalmitis? Is there going to be a drop? We don't know. Um, these things are, are we're flying by the seat of our pants in so many ways. Moo, what about drug choice? Are you altering your drugs that you use, using more steroids for patients with DME, using a different anti-VEGF agent than perhaps you would normally use because of these uh, these uh, days? Yeah, I think that's that's definitely crept into the subconscious, if not the conscious of, of every specialist is trying to minimize the visits for every patient. So yeah, I think we are switching more and more. Uh, we were comfortable before when a, if a patient was happy coming in every four to five weeks on a Vastin and they didn't have a problem with it, well, I said, okay, well, if you're happy, then we'll just continue this. But, um, you know, it's a burden for them to come in, for their families, and it's a scary experience every time they do it. On top of it, if you have a patient who's in a nursing facility, they're often felt uh, forced to quarantine after their visit with us uh, for at least 10 to 14 days I've, I've been hearing from my patients. So uh, if we can minimize that, I think that's a good thing. And I, I, I would say I've been using more steroid necessarily, but definitely switching any VEGFs uh, a little more frequently than I have been. I think whether or not that's gone into practice, I think durability of drugs has been something that's been top of mind for all retina specialists during this period. Because, you know, what, at the very beginning, when we were very strict in enforcing the numbers that we could be seeing to just be able to um, observe social distancing and, and, you know, minimizing patient overlap, um, it was hard. We had to actually make choices for which patients could come and which patients had to be canceled. And that can be very, very tough in the field of retina. So just thinking about you know, drugs that potentially can get us to quarterly injections or even longer than that is really um, an interesting thought. I think some of us have probably been hesitant to switch. I, I'm a big fan of steroids, but sometimes you might be hesitant to switch in a time like this when you know patients might not be able to easily get back in just in case they have an IOP elevation or something like that. But it's definitely something that I've thought about a lot. Do you think there's a tangible difference in duration of anti-VEGF agents that we're using right now? I think that in some patients, um, possibly, um, you know, we, we know, we know the data scientifically, but I think in the real world and how that translates, um, some patients may get longer durations with, you know, a flibber set, for instance, than, than others, and some may not. Um, 
there's a new drug, obviously, even newer, Grolocizumab on the market that uh, I think we're all hoping um, could, all, could, could lead to longer duration in, in intervals in between injections. But because of recent safety concerns that have arisen, I think, again, during this period where there's a lot of uncertainty, people are really trying to minimize um, that amount of uncertainty for their patients as well. And, and the worry of inflammatory um, you know, observations happening may sway people to avoid trying it during this period of time. But I have several patients on brolicizumab who have done great. And um, I'm right at that point right now where I'm about to start increasing their intervals to uh, quarterly. So we'll see how they do. I don't think it's been, I, ha I haven't used it long enough to really be able to comment on how consistently patients can reach um, acute 12 week interval in a real world setting, but that, that is a hope. And I do have a lot of patients also on Ozerdex and, and, um, and Alluvian who um, I've been following through this period and it's been nice because they haven't had to come in for monthly or Q six week injections. Have you had any inflammatory incidents? I actually have not personally, but I've also, um, we just got it, um, that drug at Baylor in back in January. So I've really only used it in a handful of patients and um, with kind of the recent events and the concerns about um, intraocular inflammation, I ended up revisiting that consent process with a lot of patients and kind of um, some of those patients decided not to continue forward and some of them did, um, but we really made sure we discussed all of those risks carefully um, so that they could really make an informed decision for themselves. David, for you, brolicizumab, does it have a role right now? You know, I, I, we started using it in November when it was approved and out and I, I did very much like Christina to kind of revisit the consent process, you know, for if patient was doing well and having no issues and, you know, we'd watch closely. And, but I think we, we, and we know the data well, I think it's always, kind of the fun part, and I hope it always remains this art part in retina, unlike, you know, some more of the uh, taxonomy or some of the more procedural types of uh, treatments is that you're always trying to find kind of the best interval, you know, the best, the longest interval with the least amount of side effects and, you know, the, the best efficacy. So uh, this kind of brings that point home of where those needs really exist and to minimize any extra visits, especially, in, you know, with COVID-19 hanging around. What I'm really excited about, John, is gene therapy and other prospects in the future that might take us out even longer, Q16, Q20, maybe forever, maybe a one-time treatment. And those are closer than, than, um, than we think, I hope. And uh, hopefully that will make um, you know, decision-making easier in the future should we ever face a situation like this again where we're having to make decisions like that that are very, very challenging. Moo, let's, uh, let's talk about telemedicine. You talked about the uh, idealistic side of telemedicine, but that it's not always working for you. What's your setup for telemedicine right now? Um, so we, uh, it, with our electronic health record, we use MDI and they have been great in adapting uh, a, a platform for telemedicine with integrated video and a waiting room. And so it's, it's basically built into the, the EHR that we already use. And so um, what really has been the difficult thing in our protocols has been uh, finding a time when the doctor says he's available, <laughs> literally just <laughs> trying to figure out when, when can you be free and when can the patient be free. And then number two is the technology aspect. You know, I've, I've been surprised. I've been both surprised on both ends. I have 90-year-olds that have iPhones, and then I have six-year-olds that have Nokia flip phones. And uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a gamut there. And so whenever we start a telemedicine call, there's a button you click just to say, notify your patient you're ready for the call, and it's supposed to email and text a link. 
And my experience is half the time, the patient never gets it and they're not sure how to open it. And we're on the phone like an IT consultant trying to get them to figure out how to get the video to work because ultimately we need, we need to have a video conversation for the telehealth to have an ROI. Um, and right now it's been, it's been a struggle. I'd say I do probably one or two a day um, and they can be practical. I mean, I, I just, uh, the one I did today, I do all the kind of IOL cases in my practice for whatever reason. And so uh, a patient, uh, my partners was signed up for an IOL surgery with me. I wanted to talk to them about what to expect during surgery, what kind of IOL should I select, what should your aim be, all that stuff. So we did a telehealth kind of pre-op visit and I had my partner's exam to rely on. So that was a really useful, I think, way to avoid a visit and, uh, and get some practical information for, for a surgical plan. David, in your practice, what role does telehealth have? Zero, uh, John. Yeah, it, it really, we, because of that partition that we were able to, that we just do naturally of treatment and assessment, uh, we've been able to just, we call everyone, everyone gets called and screened. So before uh, they get to the clinic, for sure. But then from there on in, it's either, you know, to the injection clinic to continue treatment, minimize visit, get there quick and out, or, hey, there's something more to it. So we're going to fit you into the clinic flow downstairs where we can still keep uh, social distancing, keep you safe. Uh, so we haven't used telemedicine at all. And if you have a patient that comes in in your situation, David, that needs an injection, let's say a new patient, are they scheduled to come back for that injection or do you just walk them upstairs and do the injection? Oh, you can just, you can just walk them upstairs. You basically just send them back to the elevator. They could take it up or they could be walked by one of the uh, texts, uh, whatever's easier if they have a wheelchair. Christina at Baylor, what's the role for telehealth for the university uh, and then for the ophthalmology department and for you? Sure. Well, it's interesting because I'm actually a physician champion of a really large diabetic retinopathy telehealth screening program here in Harris County. And we run that through our county hospital and um, it's been a great success, but it still involves the patient being seen at their primary care provider um, and having a non-midriatic fundus uh, photograph taken, which is then read. So that's kind of that traditional definition of telemedicine. And now when we talk about telemedicine in the era of COVID-19, it's a little bit different, right? Because the whole point is to socially distance so the patients aren't having to come in for that visit. And so we have um, actually integrated uh, the ability to make Zoom patient calls through our Epic platform. That's the electronic health record that we use here. And um, a lot of people have used it in other departments. I will say that for retina as a subspecialty, I have found it challenging. Um, a lot of times I think it's great for triaging. I think patients appreciate the phone call and seeing your face and they find some comfort in just being able to describe their symptoms, but it makes it really tough if they feel like their vision has changed. It makes it really challenging to say, oh, I don't think it's really anything without the aid of an OCT, without a dilated examination. So it's been a a little bit of a challenge from that sense. Um, I think there's limited use, uh, probably less so in our field than maybe some other fields, but it's still helpful. And um, as was mentioned before, you know, when you're in situations like this, it very well may be better than nothing um, because at least you can glean some information from the patient and let them know how urgently you really do feel like they need to come in for a visit. But, and I know I was uh, actually attending uh, the webinar that you guys hosted last week, but Home OCT, I think, is really something that would revolutionize retina because that is really what we need for that security to be able to tell patients, hey, I think you can probably wait a couple weeks or you need to come to my office tomorrow. Totally agree. You know, right now we don't have home OCT, but we do have um, 
We do have home monitoring, uh, AmpsGrid, obviously, some of the apps, and then the 4C home device. David, what role does home monitoring and self-monitoring have in your practice? Uh, you know, very little, John. You know, so much uh, of our practice really involves because we just serve such a huge area. The kind of this very um, dedicated approach to being efficient in terms of patient care and patient treatment that uh, we we kind of do everything in house and it works really well. It's also I. I find the best way to support our referring uh, doctors so that patients are seen. And so we, we don't really utilize any of those methods. And Mu, what about yourself? You know, other than the traditional AMSR grid, grid our practice really hasn't embraced 4C8 home or any other of the app-based uh, home monitoring systems. Um, uh, part of it probably is just that we're, we've been closed-minded about it. And perhaps it is something that we should look into. Can I ask you, John, has, has your practice uh, looked into that over a little bit more since COVID? Yeah, we, we actually, uh, we were in the home study um, and in the ARADS2 study. And so we're, we're firm believers. We've had about seven or eight patients just since the advent of the 4C home device that have been picked up with coordinate vascularization that didn't realize they had it called for an alert. Uh, we have some false positives and patients have to come in and get screened and made sure that everything's fine. Patients who get it, love it. Uh, there's maybe about 30, 40% of patients that just can't do it. And so you've got to realize that where I think it's really important is in the education of your referring doctors, because where this device ultimately fits is, is in the optometrist's hands uh, because so many of our patients are already unilaterally affected. Now it's great to have it for screening of the fellow eye, but really realistically we need those patients that are at intermediate to high risk uh, with bilateral dry AMD to get this device and to use it. Now where I do think things fit for our practices in the home OCT. I think home OCT as Christi Christina alluded to is going to be a game changer because we can customize the care and, and almost provide concierge care to our patients where we see them leaking and we bring them right in. So it's like the eye care uh, for glaucoma. It's amazing. I mean, it really will be a game changer for us as far as that goes. And speaking of game changers, Mu, you all are involved in a lot of clinical research. What has you excited going forward that's in research right now? Um, you know, Christina mentioned gene therapy. We're, we're in the Barum trial. Uh, I think gene therapy is really, really exciting. Um, it will be interesting to see how infl inflammation uh, is something that we haven't had to deal much with as uh, in terms of pharmacology, but now we're seeing more and more of. Uh, that'll be a challenge, but I think that's an exciting area. And then I'm, uh, I'm particularly excited about the, the PDS, the device with Genentech. Um, you know, they have already completed the latter trial, and now we're doing Pagoda, uh, which is looking at DME. And then Pavilion, which is going to be looking at diabetic retinopathy severity. And especially in our type 1 diabetic population, um, that, that I feel like is going to be a huge game changer in reducing the number of TRDs that come through the door. I mean, I think that could be really exciting. Mu, are you struggling to recruit for some of these actively enrolling visits right now? Um, I would say not because of patient enthusiasm, just because of volume. Um, and part of it was, you know, all our referring doctors, the optometry offices were closed until a week and a half ago. And now we're seeing the referrals starting to come in as they were before. And we're transitioning back to our sort of normal schedule with social distancing. So I think that's going to ramp up. Um, in terms of, um, you know, patients' perception of risk when it comes to gene therapy or these surgical trials, I think um, uh, the gene therapy, there's a little more skepticism. There's a, I, I found that patients are a little more unsure of, because of, it's just harder to understand 
uh, truly. And when it comes to the surgical thing, you know, it's you kind of explain it to them and they're sort of wowed by the idea of it. And, and they're also reassured by the fact that there's been a phase two that has had decent results uh, so far. So um, I think uh, th- that has not been a limiting factor for the PDS trials. David, what about yourself? You're always involved in a lot of research. What, what research studies are you particularly excited about that may be coming out in the next uh, year? Yeah, you know, we have a whole clinical trials division that, you know, everything phase one through phase three that we're involved in. You know, I, I've, I've heard the last, you know, it feels like five years feels like a lifetime i'm still obsessed with dry md as a target uh you know in its approach you know be it the you know the negative trials we've had in the last couple of years so that, that's what i'm still excited about uh, it's interesting and i i really get uh, look forward to kind of some of these phase one trials uh, with new molecules new uh, mechanisms of action uh, so that's what i'm really looking forward to and christina you mentioned gene therapy what other things are you interested in that's in clinical studies right now i think moo also mentioned um PPS device. I think it's a really um, promising um, way to really revolutionize the way we treat our wet AMD patients because, you know, a lot of these drugs, they're great and there's a lot of great agents right now in the pipeline, but they're incremental changes that sometimes when we translate them to the real world setting, we don't necessarily um, observe that length of duration in between treatments for a lot of our patients um, for many different reasons, not necessarily related to the drug, but just for our patients in general. And I think PDS and gene therapy really take that um, treatment interval to a new level that we have not ever seen before. And that's beneficial for everybody involved, um, us, but especially the patients. And reducing treatment burden, I think, is a huge, huge benefit to be gained um, for from many different levels. Christina, you're at an academic institution. Financially, how is Baylor doing as a whole? I think that uh, like many practices, regardless if you're in an academic setting or or a private setting, uh, this whole past six, seven, eight weeks has been um, extremely challenging. It's been a big hit from a financial standpoint, no matter what kind of a practice you're in. The fortunate part of being in an academic center is that uh, you have a little more padding in terms of cash flow, obviously. Um, So you have other resources that you can tap into, um, unlike, you know, a practice with maybe only one or two retina physicians where that can really become an issue, especially since we deal with such expensive um, drugs, which is a whole nother business stream kind of in itself for any retina practice. So it's definitely been hard. I think what's interesting and what a lot of people may not realize is that a lot of academic institutions now are run very much like a private practice um, in terms of reimbursement and compensation to physicians. And so I do think that we will all feel it for a little bit, um, but we've talked about ways to sort of uh, offset that in the next coming months as we begin to reopen and how we can counteract that. And I think telemedicine and really the acknowledgement from CMS and the government of that value has helped a little bit in terms of um, keeping us padded from that aspect. But we've also talked about extending our work hours, potentially working Saturdays and Sundays. I'm going to be busy over the next few months um, to really try to recoup some of that revenue. And that's just a reality. And that's just something that I think we're all going to have to think about and consider. Move for you and your practice, have any of the older physicians thought about retiring, slowing down? And if you're looking to hire, has that thought process changed? I am just... I've been floored by the fact that none of them seem to want to retire. <laughs> you know, there's some that are in the last, you know, four to five years of their career and they're, they're still working the same shifts uh, that they did before at the same intensity when they're in clinic. 
Um, so uh, we, we haven't, uh, we actually just hired two doctors uh, probably about six months ago. Um, and they transitioned from a private equity group that was our major competitor. So they joined us. And so we haven't really had the need to hire. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they've been looking back at their old colleagues and their multi-specialty private equity practice. And their old colleagues are not getting paid right now. And on the flip side, in our practice, where our model was historically up until a month ago, eat what you kill, we have completely flipped and we have converted to a communist model because we know that right now volume is not in our control if we're the individual doctor. And we are working in shifts where there's doctors in the OR one week and physicians in the clinic one week, and we're sharing responsibilities a lot more than we used to. And so there's a lot more, I think, um, uh, equality financially uh, that, that being in a private practice can afford sometimes than, than larger institutions or private equity. Do you think you'll go back to the eat what you kill model once this is over? I think ultimately we will. Yeah. And that, that transition point is uh, going to be under debate. It was under debate when we should transition from uh, the eat what you kill financially to the communist model. And we, I think we ultimately decided uh, late March, like the third week of March, we said, okay, we'll transition right there. That's when things started to go south for the volume and the practice. Um, I just don't know when that's going to be. That's, that'll, we'll have to play by ear. And David, what about your practice? Any major changes from a business structure standpoint? Yeah, we're, we're kind of in a unique position. So, you know, because we're we serve such a large area, and there's really no retina practice for for a while. So we saw, you know, really steady demand that for the first couple of weeks that we did see a drop, but, uh, you know, you know, luckily, I don't know if that's the right word, wasn't as major. Uh, but once again, it was just because the way we kind of have it partitioned, I think Christina brought up a good point earlier that this idea of treatment burn, which we, you know, we talk all the time about, but well, uh, since adopting this injection clinic model, what, I, what we found uh, uh, myself and us as a group is that once you kind of, if you can make that treatment visit really, really efficient, really, really quick, uh, it becomes much less of an issue. And, and, and I'm, I was kind of taken aback by how many patients are willing to come every month or whatever, as long as they're going to be in and out and, you know, and the parking's not an issue. So um, it, it's, I think this dr- helped us drive uh, that point home that this was a good decision. It's going to work out by continuing to emphasize a really efficient, uh, safe area in terms of treatment. David, it's looking like our next major meeting is going to potentially be the American Academy of Ophthalmology meeting in Las Vegas. What's it going to take for you to go to that meeting? Yeah, it's tricky, man. Uh, it, it, obviously, I want to go. I want to go see Christina and Moo, and I want to see you there. You know, I'll see people in, uh, Scott there in person again because I haven't seen you guys in, in a while now. <laughs> uh, but you really think about, you know, I'm so, you know, uh, both Moo and Christina mentioned the PPEs. You know, I'm, uh, I, I wear a mask. All our patients wear a mask. You know, but I'm really deathly afraid of like passing on. You know, being an asymptomatic carrier and you know seeing so many patients and passing it on. So you know airport so you know you really have to think about that it used to be such an easy decision but uh, i want to say that i want to be there in full support but i i don't know what the november will will show on on, on the radar Mu, what about yourself what's it going to take to get you to las vegas i mean i think it's going to be a, a, a nationwide perspective shift you know paradigm shift in the way that we're running every business and and, and we look at travel uh, because david's point is so well taken we are not just at risk, we are at risk of transmission um, in terms of, of, of being asymptomatic carriers. You know, is, uh, for, for the majority of specialists that are under 50, you, know, you can be healthy and, and be shedding without knowing it. Uh, and I fear harming my patients. So I think you have to, it's gonna take a lot. 
It truly will. I'm, I was really relieved that ASRS made the decision to, to transition to a virtual meeting and it was the right thing to do. And we'll see what happens in AAO. You know, I'm not sure. It depends on the fall epidemiologic spike. If that, if that happens, then I think we definitely should be really cautious about, about having an in-person meeting. And I think that's the hardest part of this whole pandemic is just not being able to plan because you don't know what's coming. This is totally unprecedented. We don't even really know what our, you know, a lot of people are using antibody tests. We don't know the meaning of that right now. We don't know if that totally. confers immunity or what that even means and, and yeah. how long it stays positive. How many of these tests actually have a lot of false positives or false negatives? Like what's the reliability of these tests? And I don't think we're going to have a vaccine, not to sound pessimistic, but by, by the fall or even winter, it's, you know, from most experts mouths, it's going to take at least 12 to 18 months to have that. So the hard part about this is meetings that are coming up later in this year you've got a plan for meetings because we have to take time away from offices, et cetera. But people are also wanting to wait to kind of get the gestalt of what's appropriate and not what's not appropriate from a societal standpoint at that time. But you've got to make a, you've got to make those judgment calls, um, you know, at some point in advance. So that is the hardest part. I'll mention one more thing, but I don't know if any of you guys experience this at any of your facilities, but at Baylor, there were certain States where if I had traveled during this last month, I would have to self quarantine for 14 days before I was allowed to come back to work. And they take that very seriously. You actually have to acknowledge that verbally and sign an attestation every single day when I walk through that building. So for instance, if that, you know, if for some reason Las Vegas or Nevada ends up having a later spike, a second spike later this year, and I have to quarantine when I come home, I can't afford to take 14 days off of work. So that's definitely something to keep in mind as well if Nevada happens to be on that list by that point. Totally. It's a good point, uh, uh, Christina, because I think if you look at the colleges that are going to go back in September, a lot of them are going to go online. But, and the ones that are going to go in person, even they've acknowledged that come October, we're going online only because there is going to be, or at least epidemiologically, expect the second spike there. So now you're talking November would be right in the middle of that. So it seems like a bad, you know, a, a tough one to negotiate right now and going forward. Something I've also thought about a lot is, you know, when the natural flu season comes and a lot of us are coming down with the common cold or influenza that happens every single year, and that coincides with the second spike of coronavirus, I think distinguishing between those entities is going to be very, very tough. And um, how we're going to change our regulations and shift the way we operate is also going to be different because I do think that screening is going to be in full force for a while. And so, um, you know, right now in the summer, you know, generally there's not that many people who, who get ill. Um, so it's a little bit easier to separate out, you know, when we ask patients, do you have a cough? Have you had a fever? But come winter, that may be very different and very muddied. Can I ask Christina, how is Baylor handling an exposure? So if you have a confirmed exposure, do you have to self-quarantine even if you're without symptoms? Yes. So if you have a confirmed exposure, um, you have you have to self-quarantine for, I think it's 10 to 14 days. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, I, I can't remember exactly what the definition of exposure is. I think you have to have that been in close contact and there's probably a little bit of gray in how yeah. that's defined. We defined it as within six feet. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, like there was a, there was a, one of my staff members had a fever just randomly in clinic and I was, I walked by him. I was quarantined for two weeks for my practice. And we, we self, we, we self enforced that. We have uh, one of the physician MDs kind of doing all the triage for, for those decisions. And uh, actually it happened to me twice. <laughs> so I was off for four weeks during this whole process. Wow. And, and are you, are you being tested Moo, while you do that? 
So the first exposure I had was a patient I operated on and testing really wasn't available uh, to, to a significant degree at that time. The second exposure, um, we decided to hold off on testing unless you develop symptoms. And I never did. And so we have antibody testing available. Uh, one, of our, one of my partners actually kind of just personally uses funds and bought a bunch of them. He thinks that the sensitivity and specificity from what he's read is good. Um, I haven't done it personally just because I, I don't know what I'd do with that information. And I don't, I don't think it would add anything to how I you know, practice or decide to go to work. So um, I'm just, there's, not enough to, to, there's not enough information about the testing to really make judgment calls. Even when we're sampling the nasopharynx, it can be deeper in your yeah. respiratory tract. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's just amazing to me that we've been doing this now, this, this, uh, this new retinal radio COVID-19 coverage for almost two months. And yet we still know so little about this. And it's, it's really kind of amazing just how we're feeling along in the dark, but also how we adapt to this. And uh, certainly having this kind of uh, talk with people like yourself, Moo and Christina and David, uh, gives a, a lot of perspective to those of us that are out there. And I want to thank you all for coming on. Uh, I want to thank uh, Avenue Live for hosting this and uh, tune in for future new Retina Radio broadcasts where we're going to bring you programming just like this. Thank you guys and stay safe. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Airy, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.